Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Do what you love. It's a simple axiom, yet one could spend an entire career trying to accomplish it. However, in only his mid-40s, Miguel McKelvey seems to be already doing what he loves. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and in this episode, we talk with the COO and co-founder of WeWork about workplace culture, the shifting paradigm of what an office should be, and his company's eyebrow-raising valuation. Welcome, everyone, to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg Speaker Series. Some of you, I can tell, are regulars. Hi, Tony. Um, it's great to see you again. For those of you who are new to this monthly gathering, we do this to give Cornell Tech students, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's burgeoning tech community the opportunity to learn more about what notable entrepreneurs, technologists, and other tech leaders are thinking and doing. So it's my pleasure to introduce Miguel McKelvey. He is co-founder of WeWork, which launched back in 2010 as an office space provider and has since evolved into something much more difficult to categorize. Is it a real estate company? Is it a tech company? Is it a lifestyle brand? We'll get into that in our conversation. But here's what you need to know right now. The numbers are staggering. WeWork is a $20 billion startup and currently the fourth most valuable US startup, keeping company with the likes of Uber, Airbnb, and SpaceX. So without further ado, let's get started. Miguel, talk a little bit about the backstory for WeWork, because you are a trained architect, graduated from University of Oregon. Your co-founder, Adam Newman, who's the other really tall guy, um, <laughs> is a serial entrepreneur. And the common thread that you guys share is that you both spent time on a commune, albeit on different sides of the world. So conceptually, is WeWork kind of a modern commune? Um, that's a great question. I think we've been asked that question in a lot of different ways, and I'm still reconciling my own relationship to that word, because the way I grew up was certainly non-traditional. It was made up of a group of women who chose to raise children as a collective with shared responsibility and without uh, fathers involved for the most part. So there was definitely an alternative proposition in terms of the way that they that we were raised as um, brothers and sisters and the primary uh, foundation of that was a shared mentality a we mentality and I think you know for and I don't know that much about a kibbutz uh, but from what I've heard there's a similar idea um, with that in Israel and so you, both Adam and I came from these environments that were non-traditional uh, from our family but I think even more importantly we both grew up surrounded by people all the time and not necessarily actual family members, but um, sort of tangential family members that were an important part of our life. And we relied on people that were outside of that traditional family structure. And I think that's something that we share still as people is we surround ourselves with others um, and rely on other people for uh, uh, social emotional support as well as uh, you know, business connection and success. So Do you feel very comfortable being part of a network and building out a network and um, seeing those networks uh, overlap? I, I think just to add to that, I think it, in many ways, in a multi-dimensional way, I think our insight 
for us for ourselves personally was that like networking as a term was very shallow mm -hmm. in like you know meeting people shaking hands getting a business card versus being in a shared environment where you had an opportunity to build a deeper more meaningful relationship all right so that's the backdrop here Let's fast forward to 2010. Timing is everything because it was 2010 and you and Adam had already started and sold a business called Green Desk in Brooklyn. You were looking for space and this was right after the financial crisis so commercial real estate was still pretty bombed out. It should follow that landlords would be eager to lease space out to you but that wasn't exactly what happened. They had some reservations, didn't they? Well, there was a lot of reservations primarily because I mean, real estate as an industry is quite traditional, you know, risk averse, and also in many ways is a small family business. You know, the people who control real estate uh, for the most part are big families or holding companies. And we had no background in real estate. We had no connections. We had no money. So in that context, um, we didn't have a lot going for us when we knocked on the door and said, hey, we would like to lease this space. What we did have was an idea that we had some validation for in Green Desk. But, but beyond that, we really had no other reason uh, uh, to convince someone to, to, to lease space. So you know, the first building we got in Soho, it was um, really a very narrow lease that we kind of had to grow into in order to get the entire building. And luckily, we were able to prove success very quickly in order to grow into that lease. Right. They were kind of uncomfortable with these a flexible arrangement. They were more used to long-term contracts, long-term leases, and they kind of just weren't sure what was going to happen. My question to you now is the economy is doing really well. Uh, obviously, there's a huge startup community. People are always looking to, to take risks. What happens when the economy turns south again? Your tenants, your members um, are more tilted towards startups or VC-funded enterprises. They could be in trouble. They could go under, and they could struggle to pay their rent. Well, I think there's a couple of misconceptions or inaccuracies there. In the first case, um, when we started, it was a bad time uh, in the world financially, and there were a lot of businesses that were struggling. And um, p landlords at the time actually said, well, okay, you were successful in that one building in Soho. We're trying to get more buildings. And they said, the only reason this is working is because this is a, a downturn. And the only time someone wants to sign these short-term, month-to-month leases are when things are terrible and they can't afford to take a long-term lease. As soon as the economy comes back, everyone will forget about this idea and everyone wants to go back to the normal, whatever, five or ten year lease structure. So that was actually a reason for turning us down in the beginning. And there was, I mean, I would say in New York City, at least 30 people said that to us. Mm -hmm. Like, sorry, we're not renting for you. You're like a down market solution. You'll be gone. And, you know, as soon as the market comes back. So that was the perception then. So it's ironic now that it would be like, oh, it's flipped. Now we're in an up market. And the only reason you're successful is. So everyone is, has money. But the other part of that is that a very small portion of our membership are startup companies. So from the beginning, our differentiator, there was lots of incubators. There was shared workspace that was oriented towards tech startup. You know, and they get plenty of money and support. But who we felt like was missing were many other small business types uh, that were unsupported, from architects to fashion designers to you know, filmmakers to lawyers and accountants, all these companies that have stable business models, but don't get uh, any small business support. They, there's no incubator for, uh, for, for, for architects, right, or for, an, for, for independent accountants. So we, in creating a broad community of business types, um, created a hedge against any particular market segment. And that's something that wasn't purposeful for the reason of business protection. It was just the community that we were a part of. We weren't in the tech startup scene. 
we were entrepreneurs who did other things, and so the people that we were connected to were much more diverse. And you've expanded your operations. You've expanded kind of what you do. You launched We Live last year, which is uh, co-living residences. The goal was to have this make up, what, one-fifth of revenue by 2018, but there are only two locations now rather than the 34 you had planned for the end of this year. Growth has been a little bit slow. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, so, well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that our intent with our business from the beginning was to do multiple we-based businesses, for lack of a better term. So when we made the first proposal for a building after Green Desk, it was a multi-use building that included We Live, We Work, a hotel concept, a restaurant concept, a barber shop, a fitness concept, a philanthropy concept. So we're looking forward to a uh, barbershop soon as well. <laughs> it's, it's, we'll see. But, uh, and, and it also included, um, there was an education idea there too. So the, so the premise from the beginning was that this was a multidimensional uh, support system for people who thought differently in the world. So if you, were, if you were a person who was interested in others, who felt like being surrounded by others, being open to them was important and meaningful and that you had a greater chance of success in a community like that, that that was something that could support all businesses. Uh, or all business types. So that premise has existed from the beginning. The starting we live uh, was um, in the first round was experimental and the first uh, buildings that we did were considered um, whatever you want to call it, alpha, beta test. And what we learned from that is really important um, in order to further develop the product. And I think both of the buildings have worked really well in that regard. Um, but Honestly, what's been harder is that what you know we we work is an incredibly efficient business model in the fact that you can lease space of pretty much any size or shape, you can quickly execute on the build out, and you can operate, uh, you know, very efficiently. We live to do it right is mostly ground up construction. I mean, conversions which we did are okay, but to do it really well to create the environments that we think are the best, we'd prefer to do ground up. Now that doesn't mean we're not exploring a lot of other options. But the cycle for doing ground-up development with partners is much longer. And so there are many projects that are in process, but you just don't hear about them yet. Mm, okay. Well, speaking of projects that are in process, you're at a really pivotal, exciting time. We were trying to just get a handle on the news flow out of WeWork over the last two months, and it, it's kind of nonstop. Uh, you bought the Flatiron School, which is a coding boot camp. You bought, uh, part of a as part of a joint venture, the Lord & Taylor Building in New York City on Fifth Avenue by... 38th Street, um, to serve as your headquarters. You struck partnerships with companies like Samsung, Airbnb, Cheddar, the Aspen Institute. You've announced plans to launch a private elementary school. Was this all in that original proposal? To some degree. I mean, certainly these things have been evolving internally for a while. In some cases, in other cases, we're still a startup who changes and, and, and jumps on new ideas very quickly and executes on them. So. I think there's a mix of strategy and opportunism in everything we do, and the timing of certain things uh, happens. I mean, it's not like we weren't out in the market searching for uh, a building like the Lord & Taylor building, thinking that's what we have to get to. Um, so we didn't, like the notoriety that came with it wasn't planned. And to be honest, it was a surprise to us because we didn't know that many people cared about that. But um, it, Until the New York Times wrote something about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it, to be honest, I mean, we do a lot of real estate deals, not acquisitions necessarily, but we're in a lot of buildings all over the world. So it's not, we didn't know, wow, this is some major moment. But, um, but I think it was, that was a signal not only of what we did, but also the state of retail in the world and what's happening and the shift and all that. So 
I think it was, it was newsworthy for multiple reasons. But the cool thing is it has been part, we've always given ourselves the room to explore and to think about different ways that we can um, fulfill this obligation that we have always felt to support people in a, multi, in a multi-dimensional way. And I don't know if you mentioned, mentioned RISE, but RISE is you know, a fitness and wellness concept that we launched as well. And so each one of these things, there's a signal toward a future that we believe in. So supporting people, not just in business success, but in health and wellness, in education, in you know, thinking in cities and communities. You know, we, we're, we, we've always been considering these things, but to be honest, it's hard to build a company like this, and, the more, and, and you need to hire people who are qualified to take on these challenges. And so as we've been able to raise additional capital, as we've been able to hire more qualified people, you know, as our profile has grown, more people are attracted to us, more people with great talent and smart brains are coming to us, and that empowers us to move more quickly into these other, into these other um, whatever, ventures, divisions, whatever you want to call them. So the opportunity is there for you. You have the funding, you have the resources, but why now? Is this about striking while the iron is hot, when tech is doing really well, when the economy is doing really well? You know, I wish we were that like strategic and we had it all figured out for the timing and we knew exactly when to strike. I don't think it's like that. I think it's more, I mean, we did raise money, so there is an empowerment to having... SoftBank, um, for instance? Yeah, I mean, we raised an amount of money that gives us more flexibility, especially when you're doing acquisitions that include cash. It's a good thing to have cash as a component of those acquisitions. But additionally, I think um, a lot of it is people. Like we've learned that we have limitations as that people inside of the organization can only be asked to stretch so far. And it perhaps is just a confluence of people in the right time in the right place who can, you know, grab hold of these objectives and then execute. And we're lucky to be able to support them. So if we've got someone who's entrepreneurial internally and has an idea, we now have the capability to support them you know, with, with a lot of different functions. Because one of the mistakes we made in the past was like, someone has a great idea, we're like, yeah, go ahead and do it. And then that person would like come back and say, okay, I need like help from the brand team, help from marketing team, help from sales, help from finance, help. And all those people would be like, whoa, who are you? Right, you know? <laughs> well, like, we have a We have a real job, Why, what are you asking us for? Like, we've never heard of this We Live before. Like that's what, that was actually me. Like I was sort of the entrepreneur who launched We Live. And I'm the co-founder of the company, and I was going around asking for resources, and people are like, sorry, I'm too busy for you. <laughs> so that, that's a change, is that you know, you, to, 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 build, um, to be able to, to take on these challenges, you have to first you know, build um, teams that can be responsive, and, and, and you can only stretch teams so far. And we work, and it's extreme pace has stretched people very far. You stretch people really far. You're also stretching the concept of, of we in the community pretty far, including all these different offshoots that we just talked about. Um, when it comes to diversifying revenue, I wonder, are you recalibrating how much real estate will make up uh, your business versus other parts? Have you come up with a balance? Um, my title is Chief Culture Officer, and I specifically call it that, so I don't have that has anything to you do with money. You don't have to worry money. about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, before it was Chief Creative Officer, it's also specifically because I didn't want to have anything to do with money. But that said, um, again, I think what we've been, what we've been honest with our uh, investors in terms of what, what we're trying to accomplish in the world, and I think that people have supported us because they believe in our ability to execute. 
um, we've consistently executed and our, 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 our projects do well, and I think that's given us the license to explore. But you know, I'm not in the room when we present the numbers to, uh, to the bankers or the investors. I just know that the result coming out is they give us the money, so they must <laughs> like that. They must like what they hear. It's a good you know? position to be in. Yeah. <laughs> well, Miguel, when we look at uh, the economy, the tech industry overall, if you take a step back, tech is really the story in the stock market. Uh, it's the best performing sector. The economy is doing well. It's where the hiring is taking place. From where you stand, from just looking around, and especially as a co-founder of a private company. Do you think we're in a bubble? Does it feel bubble-like? You know, I've been around, my first company I started was in 99, so, um, and that was a software company. So I definitely felt a bubble then mm. because the businesses that, for those of you guys who remember, there were so many businesses that even dumb people could look at and be like, that doesn't make sense, you know? And not, not to say that there weren't like, some that sounded dumb but actually worked out. Are you afraid of Pets.com? Mm, I don't name any names, but, um, but, but yeah, there was a lot out there that just, you know, it wasn't the right time for, 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 the, for those businesses. And now I don't see that. I mean, I feel like the companies that I see, and I'm not, I don't invest in companies, but, um, but you know, I see people doing AI, for example, which is a hot sector, and I'm like, yeah, AI has an extremely logical application to the world in so many different ways. You know, I'm, that doesn't, like if that's getting funded, I don't think that's a bubble. Will all those companies succeed? I don't know, but is there a, a logical, you know, financial return for these companies? I, I think, and I, I speak at quite a few events where a component of the event is people presenting the work that they're doing. And it's rare that I see like a business and I'm just like, oh, that's a, not just a dumb idea, but one that doesn't have like actual applications to real world problems, you know? So to me, it feels different. And again, I, I'm not an economist. I'm not a person who watches the market. I don't do that. It's just more from an intuitive standpoint, it just seems so much different. Well, obviously, there's also a lot of criticism out there about how private companies are overvalued, too. How do you respond to those critics who say, we work as a brand, a lifestyle brand, bolted onto a real estate company, and that you probably don't deserve your $20 billion valuation. Well, I, you know, I've wondered about valuations. Um, I think my mom gave me this little book when I was like 16 because I told her I wanted to be a stockbroker. Um, and I remember reading valuation and I remember saying to her, I don't understand, like, why is a stock worth this much? And she said the only reason she could come up with when, in the explanation was because someone will pay for it, right? Which, and I was like, but that doesn't make sense. Like, I mean, how come one company can be valued so much more than another and, and when their income is the same or their profit is the same? It doesn't make sense. So, I mean, value? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like, it's like, who can say? Like, it's like, okay, it's your opinion. I'm overvalued or undervalued. Like, who gives a shit? Like, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't affect me and the business that I'm trying to do and the work that we do as a company. Valuation does not come into the equation, right? So why do we even need to be in that discussion? Like, I don't care. Everyone else in the world, discuss it. But we have, like, you know, thousands of people who come to work every day to do something that they believe in. They're trying to have a positive impact on the world. They, they, they believe that the structure that we're creating is allowing them to do that. Who cares about anything else? Like, as long as they can be in that position and we're creating the context for them to 
feel good about the work that they do. That's all, that's a, that's, that's all anyone can aspire to in the case of a company. Now, will that work realize the financial return that will be validated in the future? You know, I hope so. Well, but, you care also because that valuation means that people like Masayoshi son of SoftBank feel comfortable putting money into a company like WeWork, allowing you to pursue all these different offshoots. Let's talk a little bit about that SoftBank investment. Um, mm -hmm. You've announced it in August, $4.4 billion into WeWork. That's quite a chunk of change. What does this funding from SoftBank, from Masayoshi Sun, allow WeWork to do that you couldn't do before? Well, the first thing is important to know about that investment is it's diversified. So part of it is going into WeWork for, say, the majority of the world. Another part's going into Japan. Another part's going into, there's another vehicle for China, and then there's Southeast Asia. And, and so that, that, that division, if you look at it for Japan, for example, you know, entering a market that's well-funded with good partners, you know, SoftBank is obviously a great partner in Japan because of their connections, as well as they have a whole portfolio of companies they, they invest in who are, um, we can work with. So if you think about it from not just a money perspective, but a connections perspective, um, we're empowered in a lot of ways to, uh, to move much more quickly than we could otherwise. And not only that, I think our, who we are in the world is changing, right? Like, I think for, there are some people who still would use the word co-working to describe our company, right? Which is a very shallow description of what we do. But when we go into a new market like Japan, we're, we're thinking of ourselves as uh, uh, new, inspirational, um, I don't even know philosophy. It's hard to, let's just say that work culture in Japan is messed up, right? <laughs> I think that a lot of people would agree with that. And we're looking at it as entering a market to help shift that uh, reality. And whether that means that all of the people who currently go to an office building in Japan will be in a WeWork in the future, which is totally possible. But if that doesn't happen, that we still will have influenced you know, work culture in Japan in a positive way that makes all companies there rethink the way that they're, they're, they're treating their team members. You know, so the aspiration is different. It's a, it's a higher level aspiration. It's not, just, it's not just about numbers or the number of um, members that we'll have there. It's more what's the broader impact we're going to have. And in a, again, in a multidimensional way, because what we can offer is so much more. You know, our portfolio of of, of support systems are, are more broad and, and, and we get the chance to deploy them um, all at some point because we have more, more funding. Whereas if you were just starting like one building at a time, mm -hmm. it, would be, it would take much longer. Also, Masayoshi Sun's name stamped to your company gives you a certain buy-in from you know, the investment community from Silicon Valley at large too. I mean, there's, there, there's access with him, isn't there? I think there's... I mean, someone out here earlier um, suggested otherwise. Uh, I think that I think that he gives us a great um, the connection to him is one really important because it's a validation and that's awesome. But two, we share values and we see the future in the same way. And the investments that they're making at SoftBank, I think, are aligned with with things that we believe in and and, and we see a shared future together. Um, but at the same time, I mean, we still have to perform, right? It's like no one's going to believe in us if we don't deliver on what we say we're going to do. Having someone else's validation only goes so far. Yeah, yeah. 
You were telling me he's like Adam in terms of thinking big, but more. Yeah, well, for anyone who knows Adam, I mean, he's not shy about um, talking about our future and about what we're going to accomplish. And that's a really fun environment to work in for him to be constantly pushing us. Um, but what I said about, uh, about Maso is that he takes whatever Adam says and multiplies it. Um, depending on one day it might be two, other times it might be ten. So if you already have a person who's visionary um, and then you have someone else who's, who's, who's saying go even further, um, I think that that feels, um, of course, uh, scary but also super exciting. And I think that's um, where we are now is a place where we get to aspire so big. And that's, that's awesome. You know, that's okay, incredible. Okay, so let's aspire big and think broadly. We talked earlier about how some people might describe uh, WeWork as a co-sharing, co-working uh, environment. Um, it's been described as an office rental landlord. Clearly, that's not the full story. You've become something else entirely. Are you a lifestyle company? Let's, let's try to figure this out. You know, I think at its base, we're a community company. I mean, we're, when we look at what's the thing that stitches this all together, it's building communities in different contexts and, and supporting communities in different contexts. And, and when you look at what is the, what's the differentiator between uh, being a part of WeWork and, and some other solution that could be similar um, but is not, it's, it's whether it's how much effort, time effort, um, training, uh, emphasis, you know, all the things that, that we encourage our team members to do are around building community and helping people feel more connected to each other. And that's, I think that's what we talk about all the time. Like if you think about what, you know, when we stand in front of our team and talk about the things that we care about, that's what we discuss, you know. And so um, to me that feels like what we are. Whether it really needs to be defined or not, I think, again, doesn't really matter. It's like we're doing what we do. Other people can define it in the terms that they want. Um, but, but, but what I will say is that it is hard to like go home for Thanksgiving and try to explain um, <laughs> what, what we work is. And I've, been, I've struggled with that from the beginning. And every year it's different too because you're growing so rapidly. Yeah, and, and it, the growing and also the, you know, that evolution and that change. I mean, just as a simple premise, you know, it's, um, it's like, the we work is so obvious uh, because it's, you know, like it actually says what we do. Yeah. Um, but then it gets confusing for all these other things. So it's like if we had a more abstract name, it might actually make it easier sometimes because it wouldn't be so specific. Were there any, uh, any other names that were under contention so that you thought about? Names. So like many what? names. No, I actually don't remember because the, the challenge is, and this is something, you know, I just said we're a community company. But like if you go look at the the brand names and the imagery that are about community when you, you know, Google image search, it's so like kind of hippy dippy and like people holding hands and like it just, it didn't, it didn't reflect like we, we, a big thing for me was not claiming community before you actually had it. Mm. So to me, like to choose an, a, a, a name that was, that had some claim on community <laughs> felt um, wrong. Uh, when we were in that process. Presumptuous, maybe. Yeah, presumptuous, and also, like, people would be like, what are you talking about? Like, you're not a community. Like, and people, you know, and so, so I think what we were looking for was a, was a connective premise, and that's where the we came from. And the we was, again, we blank, and it could be we before anything. 
And, and I think that remains, it still remains a guiding premise for us, is that we're putting that in front of, of everything. We don't put it in front of everything for like trademark reasons and stuff, but, but the premise is still there. And that's the approach, the prism through which you, you look at things. So being a community company, talk about how this community works in practice. I saw a statistic that over 70% of WeWork members have collaborated with each other in one way or another, in some shape or form. Explain how that works. Well, there's multiple ways. So I think collaboration is a broad term. We survey the members and ask them, have you collaborated with other members? And I think that comes in different forms. So some people, it could mean that they're side by side in a workspace and they've, they've become friends and they give each other hopefully some social emotional support. Um, that's actually one of my favorite experiences is when you're in a building late at night and you see members who are there and they're you know hanging out and talking about problems they're facing, whether it's life or, or, or work or whatever, um, to a ton of you know, actual business relationships, service relationships. I mean, we have a lot of service providers and we have a lot of needy companies, and that exchange happens both in a building connected by our community managers as well as in our member network. So the member network in many ways is a marketplace where you see lots of people posting needs and other people can fulfill them. And that could be anything from like, I forgot my iPhone charger today to uh, I need a presentation for an investor proposal like tomorrow morning or I need like a short film made or something like I need brand identity. There's so many different things. And then there's also, I would say, there have been many stories of partnerships. So anything from one person who folded a company and then they started up a new one the next day with someone else or two companies that merged, you know, those kind of things are happening organically all the time. Um, I think those are just, you know, those are things you would expect. Uh, and I think you know, the numbers are high, and now what's cool is we start to see those things going across the world. So we have, you know, a company in Berlin working with a company in China, for example. And those, that's where we also have a major differentiator now is we're a global network. And, um, and that's fun to see. I mean, that's, that's our future is to see that as a much larger stage for all those companies. And it's that connection that also draws some big companies into the mix as well. I mean, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, and IBM have been your members, your tenants as well, right? And they, they take up space. And they, these are the more creative side of the companies that are using WeWork space and trying to optimize those connections. Yeah, I think there's a mix. I mean, this is one of the coolest things, coolest evolutions, I think, is that when we started, our you know premise was that like many people's would be that shared workspace is something only for cool young companies and you know fashion companies and startups and you put those next to each other and you get this really cool vibe but the evolution happened pretty organically where like you know we had the consultants come in who are you know the local office of a much larger company you know, and that could be even from like Pfizer or you know KPMG or and then um, and then they would come in and they would be like, this place is awesome, I love it here. And then they would have meetings and people would come visit. And they, all of a sudden they're like, wow, we would like to bring more people here and more and more. And so uh, we had to respond to that, to go from having workspace that was good for 10 people or 12 to now 40 and 60 and 80. And then it went to 200 and 400 and so 600. Do you have a limit on these guys? Like if IBM says, I want your whole building, do you say, no, we can't do that? No, well, because it disrupts be, the chemistry. Yeah, but so that's an important premise: is that like, okay, first of all, the 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 idea that like people from IBM are less interesting or cool or deserve to be connected or or should or have the same kind of positive energy that startups or other small business have, I think is a is is false because 
Um, it, it just mean, they just unfortunately many of the times exist in uh, environments that aren't supportive to those things. But I don't think as people they're fundamentally different. And that's one of the things that I think is super exciting is that now we're getting to be involved in these conversations where we're saying, hey, you come into our buildings, your, your teams love it, they're super inspired, there's a hundred of them here. Well, you have 20,000 other people, don't they deserve the same experience? So let's work together to figure out how to deliver it for them. And, and, and I think, again, that's not some business model that we developed. That's an organic thing that they came to us and started asking for. And so um, to me, that's super exciting because I'm like, I'm like, like, I was one of those people who would be like, oh, those are corporate losers, you know, like, like, and I, but I had a major shift where I'm like, that's, that's so, that's such a stupid premise because they're not, they're human beings and all humans deserve to be in an environment that makes them feel good every day, right? Like who wants to have a job or walk into a building where they feel like shit? No one wants that. It's the infrastructure that was flawed. It's the infrastructure and the culture, you know, it's like, it's not just whether you could build a better you know, break room with snacks like is down here, but then could you also shift your culture to make it possible for people to leave their desk, right? And then could you also r realize as managers, as leaders in a company, that these days you could be working on your phone anywhere in this building, right? You don't have to be at your desk to, to look like you're working. And, and if, you, if you start to respond to the way people actually wanna work and that it's okay to be like socializing because cool ideas could come out of like, uh, uh, interesting conversation that starts about your Halloween costume, like if you believe in that, then you empower so many awesome things. And I think so it's, it's multiple shifts. But in order to make that happen, the environment is certainly a big part of it. And that was, that's our entry point. But the entry point is just is a way to like, for lack of a better term, like get our foot in the door because it's easy, it's tangible, you can see it. Like, and you can have it AB. You can be like, oh, you know, I'm Bank of America, my office is lame. We work as a cool office. Let's you know flip that and, and and put our people in a cool office. That's the first step. But then if you don't take the the further steps to then improve the culture, evolve the culture in a way that's responsive, it won't mean anything. And um, that's what you're working on now as chief culture officer. Yeah. So I mean, the exciting thing for me is that I'm doing I'm focusing my energy on our internal team first. Mm -hmm. But the premise is that it's in service to a much larger group. So whatever we're figuring out, because people are already coming to us and saying, hey, you guys have something figured out. You have a special sauce. Exactly, and we want it, mm -hmm. right? But we don't currently have a way of, we can deliver the space and we can deliver our community management team and there's a certain power in that which is awesome. But then we're gonna la layer on additional ways that we think we can impact culture in a positive way. And that's, um, so it's both a matter of developing it for our, for our team and making sure that our team are the happiest, most engaged, most excited, most you know, um, energized employees that we can possibly have, but then taking those learnings and applying them to you know, these other companies. And I think that's amazing. I mean, the discussions that we're in are with companies that have hundreds of thousands of, uh, hundreds of, thousands of employees. So as an opportunity to make a positive impact on humans, that's such a multiplier that we didn't you know, previously even consider. And this kind of came up organically, like you said. Totally organically, and and I mean, you know, the, the, we've had some cases where this distinction is so clear, like, like we've been in a building where um, you can set your watch by the time, like let's say we're in half the building and then some other traditional old, old, school, company. old school companies in the other half. 
So you can set your watch by the time that the turnstiles are buzzing with them running out of the building at like 5 p.m., right? Uh -huh. And it's like depressing that they're, they hate their job so much they're like, like we gotta get out of here like so fast, I can't take it anymore, I gotta run out. And then like our team members are all in our building, it's like, oh yeah, some people meander in and out through all hours of the day. But like, so you see this distinction and then you actually go to their office space and you can see why, you know? It's like, whoa, this place sucks. Like the door <laughs> opens and you're like, ooh, I hope I'd never have to go in there. Right, and then you open our floor and it's like, wow, people are hanging out, it's cool, they're happy, they have a smile on their face, they're talking. So it's not like so complicated to see this difference, but it is hard to execute. You know, yeah. it's not like a company can just like, oh, let's, let's evolve our culture, no problem. Flip it overnight, it doesn't work that way. But if they come to us, we can make it happen fast. All right, one final question before we open it up to the audience, which I know is eager to ask their questions. WeWork has also been taking steps to uh, engage with public policy. Uh, you have a partnership, I mentioned, with Aspen Institute to help cities understand the economic impact of innovation clusters, of startups. The chief of staff to the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, um, Mar Maria Camella, is leaving in January to join WeWork as uh, the head of policy and communication operations around the world. She's going to oversee it. What is the message that you and Adam, we work overall, want to deliver to policymakers. What's the message you aim to spread? Well, I, you know, again, from an organic perspective, um, or, 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 or seeing ourselves again, mix of strategy and opportunity, um, you know, we open, I don't know what number building, maybe fifth building or something, fourth building, um, in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And for those of you who know the Tenderloin, like many challenges for many reasons. And this building, Golden Gate Theater building, I mean, they're literally like, highest level of crime at this intersection next to the building, like prostitution, drugs. you know, drugs, uh, literally like stabbings, highest, all these numbers. And we, but we're outsiders who are dumb and we had a great uh, deal on the building and it was a beautiful building and we're like, eh, we can probably make a difference here. Um, and and, and, and we, we didn't know for sure like that we could have the impact that we believe that we could. And I don't want to, think that we're taking the credit for it. But when we put our members in that building who are brave people, who are willing to, you know, like they're getting a cool office in a really cool building, um, we helped change that neighborhood because the police started responding to in a different way. They set up, you know, different habits in the neighborhood. They actually did a thing where they removed all the cars from the street because um, apparently a lot of crime happens between the bumpers of cars of different kinds. Um, you know, the, the, it's like we played a role. Our community uh, and what they wanted played a role in changing that that um, part portion of the neighborhood. And so, so it's sharing what you've learned. So when we saw that, we're like, hey, we actually mean something more than just the inside of the building. You know, we actually can have an impact that goes beyond that. And I think that's what we 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 think that our communities of people are special people in a city, and that they actually mean something more um, because they're more aware, they're more engaged. They're more interested in local business. They don't just leave the neighborhood right after the work is done. They tend to hang out. Um, you know, they're riding their bikes a lot, you know, this kind of thing. And I think that has given us the feeling that let's try to really figure out what, what, what's happening here and what, what are the implications and, and what, what, what can we do to maximize those effects. And I think we've been in great relationship with, with mayors and with other um, entities, um, but let's work harder to figure that out. Miguel, thank you so much for your time. Miguel McKelvey, co-founder and chief culture officer at WeWork.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.